What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Part one of The Man Who Would Be King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling. Part 1. Brother to a prince, and fellow to a beggar, if he be found worthy. The law, as quoted, lays down a fair conduct of life, and one not easy to follow. I have been fellow to a beggar again and again, under circumstances which prevented either of us finding out whether the other was worthy. I have still to be brother to a prince— though I once came near to kinship with what might have been a veritable king, and was promised the reversion of a kingdom, army, law-courts, revenue and policy all complete. But to-day I greatly fear that my king is dead, and if I want a crown I must go hunt for it myself. The beginning of everything was in a railway train, upon the road to Mow from Ajmir. There had been a deficit in the budget, which necessitated travelling not second-class, which is only half as dear as first-class, but by intermediate, which is very awful indeed. There are no cushions in the intermediate class, and the population are either intermediate, which is Eurasian, or native, which for a long night journey is nasty, or loafer, which is amusing, though intoxicated. Intermediates do not buy from refreshment rooms— they carry their food in bundles and pots, and buy sweets from the native sweetmeat sellers, and drink the roadside water. This is why in hot weather intermediates are taken out of the carriages dead, and in all weathers are most properly looked down upon. My particular intermediate happened to be empty till I reached Nazirabad, when the big, black-browed gentleman in shirt-sleeves entered, and, following the custom of intermediates, passed the time of day. He was a wanderer and a vagabond like myself, but with an educated taste for whisky. He told tales of things he had seen and done, of out-of-the-way corners of the empire into which he had penetrated, and of adventures in which he risked his life for a few days' food. "'If India was filled with men like you and me, not knowing more than the crows where they'd get their next day's rations, it isn't seventy millions of revenue the land would be paying, it's seven hundred millions,' said he and as I looked at his mouth and chin I was disposed to agree with him. We talked politics, the politics of loaferdom that sees things from the underside, where the lath and plaster is not smoothed off, and we talked postal arrangements, because my friend wanted to send a telegram back from the next station to Ajmer, the turning-off place from the Bombay to the Mo line as you travel westward. My friend had no money beyond eight annas which he wanted for dinner, and I had no money at all, owing to the hitch in the budget before mentioned. Further, I was going into a wilderness, where, though I should resume touch with the treasury, there were no telegraph offices. I was therefore unable to help him in any way. "'We might threaten a station-master and make him send a wire on tick,' said my friend. "'But that'd mean inquiries for you and for me, and I've got my hands full these days. "'Did you say you were travelling back along this line within any days?' 
"'Within ten, I said. "'Couldn't you make it eight? said he. "'Mine is rather urgent business.' "'I can send your telegrams within ten days, if that will serve you,' I said. "'I couldn't trust the wire to fetch him now, I think of it. "'It's this way. He leaves Delhi on the 23rd for Bombay. "'That means he'll be running through Ajmer about the night of the 23rd.' "'But I'm going into the Indian desert,' I explained. "'Well, and good,' said he. "'You'll be changing at Marwa Junction to get into Jodhpur territory. "'You must do that.' and he'll be coming through Marwar Junction in the early morning of the 24th by the Bombay Mail. Can you be at Marwar Junction on that time? It won't be inconveniencing you, because I know that there's precious few pickings to be got out of these central India states, even though you pretend to be correspondent of the backwoodsman. Have you ever tried that trick? I asked. Again and again, but the residents find you out, and then you get escorted to the border before you've time to get your knife into them. But about my friend here, I must give him a word of mouth to tell him what's come to me, or else he won't know where to go. I would take it more than kind of you if you was to come out of Central India in time to catch him at Marwal Junction, and say to him, he has gone south for the week. He'll know what that means. He's a big man with a red beard and a great swell he is. You'll find him sleeping like a gentleman with all his luggage round him in a second-class apartment. But don't you be afraid. Slip down the window and say, he has gone south for the week, and he'll tumble. It's only cutting your time of staying those parts by two days. I ask you, as a stranger, going to the west, he said with emphasis. Where have you come from, said I. From the east, said he, and I am hoping that you will give him the message on the square, for the sake of my mother as well as your own. Englishmen are not usually softened by appeals to the memory of their mothers, but for certain reasons which will be fully apparent, I saw fit to agree. "'It's more than a little matter,' said he, "'and that's why I asked you to do it, and now I know that I can depend on you doing it. A second-class carriage at Marwar Junction and a red-haired man asleep in it. You'll be sure to remember. I get out at the next station, and I must hold on there till he comes or sends me what I want.' "'I'll give him the message if I catch him,' I say. "'And, for the sake of your mother as well as mine, I'll give you a word of advice. "'Don't try to run the Central India States just now as the correspondent of the backwoodsman. "'There's a real one knocking about here, and it might lead to trouble.' "'Thank you,' he said simply. "'And when will the swine be gone? "'I can't starve because he's ruining my work. "'I wanted to get hold of the Degumba Raja down here about his father's widow and give him a jump.' "'What did he do to his father's widow, then?' "'Filled her up with red pepper and slippered her to death as she hung from a beam. "'I found that out myself, and I'm the only man that would dare going into the state to get hush money for it. "'They'll try to poison me, same as they did in Chultumna when I went on the loot there. "'But you'll give the man at Marwar Junction my message.' "'He got out at a little roadside station, and I reflected.' I had heard more than once of men personating correspondents of newspapers and bleeding small native states with threats of exposure, but I had never met any of the caste before. They lead a hard life and generally die with great suddenness. The native states have a wholesome horror of English newspapers, which may throw light upon their peculiar methods of government, and do their best to choke correspondents with champagne, or drive them out of their mind with four-in-hand barouches. They do not understand that nobody cares a straw for the internal administration of native states, so long as oppression and crime are kept within decent limits, and the ruler is not drugged, drunk, or diseased from one end of the year to the other. They are the dark places of the earth, full of unimaginable cruelty, touching the railway and the telegraph on one side, and on the other the days of Harun al-Rashid. When I left the train I did business with diverse kings, and in eight days passed through many changes of life. Sometimes I wore dress clothes and consorted with princes and politicals, drinking from crystal and eating from silver. Sometimes I lay out upon the ground and devoured what I could get from a plate made of leaves, and drank the running water, and slept under the same rug as my servant. It was all in the day's work." Then I headed for the great Indian desert upon the proper date, as I had promised, 
and the night mail set me down at Marwa Junction, where a funny little happy-go-lucky native managed railway runs to Jodhpur. The Bombay mail from Delhi makes a short halt at Marwa. She arrived just as I got in, and I had just time to hurry to her platform and go down the carriages. There was only one second class on the train. I slipped the window and looked down upon a flaming red beard, half covered by a railway rug. That was my man, fast asleep, and I dug him gently in the ribs. He woke with a grunt, and I saw his face in the light of the lamps. It was a great and shining face. "'Tickets again?' said he. "'No,' said I. "'I am to tell you that he has gone south for the week. He has gone south for the week.' The train had begun to move out. The red man rubbed his eyes. "'He has gone south for the week.' he repeated. Now that's just like his impudence. Did he say that I was to give you anything, cause I won't? He didn't, I said, and dropped away and watched the red lights die out in the dark. It was horribly cold, because the wind was blowing off the sands. I climbed into my own train, not an intermediate carriage this time, and went to sleep. If the man with the beard had given me a rupee, I should have kept it as a memento of a rather curious affair but the consciousness of having done my duty was my only reward. Later on I reflected that two gentlemen like my friends could not do any good if they foregathered and personated correspondence of newspapers, and might, if they blackmailed one of the little rat-trap states of central India or southern Rajputana, get themselves into serious difficulties. I therefore took some trouble to describe them as accurately as I could remember to people who would be interested in deporting them, and succeeded, so I was later informed, in having them headed back from the Degumba borders. Then I became respectable, and returned to an office where there were no kings and no incidents outside the daily manufacture of a newspaper. A newspaper office seems to attract every conceivable sort of person, to the prejudice of discipline. The Nana Mission ladies arrive, and beg that the editor will instantly abandon all his duties to describe a Christian prize-giving in a back slum of a perfectly inaccessible village. Colonels who have been overpassed for command sit down and sketch the outline of a series of ten, twelve, or twenty-four leading articles on seniority versus selection. Missionaries wish to know why they have not been permitted to escape from their regular vehicles of abuse, and swear at a brother missionary under the special patronage of the editorial we. Stranded theatrical companies troop up to explain that they cannot pay for their advertisements, but on their return from New Zealand or Tahiti will do so with interest. Inventors of patent punker-pulling machines, carriage-couplings and unbreakable swords and axle-trees call with specifications in their pockets and hours at their disposal. Tea companies enter and elaborate their prospectuses with the office pens, Secretaries of ball committees clamour to have the glories of their last dance more fully described. Strange ladies rustle in and say, I want a hundred ladies' cards printed at once, please, which is manifestly part of an editor's duty. And every dissolute ruffian that ever trampled the Grand Trunk Road makes it his business to ask for employment as a proofreader. And all the time the telephone bell is ringing madly, and kings are being killed on the continent, and empires are saying, you're another, and Mr. Gladstone is calling down brimstone upon the British dominions, and the little black copy-boys are whining, copy chai haye, copy wanted, like tired bees, and most of the paper is as blank as Modred's shield. But that is the amusing part of the year. There are six other months when none ever come to call, and the thermometer walks inch by inch up to the top of the glass, and the office is darkened to just above reading light, and the press machines are red-hot to touch, and nobody writes anything but accounts of amusements in the hill stations, or obituary notices. Then the telephone becomes a tinkling terror, because it tells you of the sudden deaths of men and women that you knew intimately, and the prickly heat covers you with a garment, and you sit down and write, a slight increase of sickness is reported from the Kudajanta Khan district. The outbreak is purely sporadic in its nature, and, thanks to the energetic efforts of the district authorities, is now almost at an end. It is, however, with deep regret we record the death, etc. Then the sickness really breaks out, 
and the less recording and reporting the better for the peace of the subscribers. But the empires and the kings continue to divert themselves as selfishly as before, and the foreman thinks that a daily paper really ought to come out once in twenty-four hours, and all the people at the hill stations, in the middle of their amusements, say, "'Good gracious! Why can't the paper be sparkling? I'm sure there's plenty going on up here.' That is the dark half of the moon, and, as the advertisements say, must be experienced to be appreciated. It was in that season, and a remarkably evil season, that the paper began running the last issue of the week on Saturday night, which is to say Sunday morning, after the custom of a London paper. This was a great convenience, for immediately after the paper was put to bed, the dawn would lower the thermometer from ninety-six degrees to almost eighty-four degrees for half an hour, and in that chill, you have no idea how cold is eighty-four degrees on the grass until you begin to pray for it, a very tired man could get off to sleep ere the heat roused him. One Saturday night it was my pleasant duty to put the paper to bed alone. A king or courtier or a courtesan or a community was going to die or get a new constitution or do something that was important on the other side of the world, and the paper was to be held open till the last possible minute in order to catch the telegram. It was a pitchy black night, as stifling as a June night can be, and the loo, the red-hot wind from the westward, was booming among the tinder-dry trees and pretending that the rain was on its heels. Now and again a spot of almost boiling water would fall on the dust with the flop of a frog, but all our weary world knew that was only pretense. It was a shade cooler in the press-room than the office, so I sat there while the type ticked and clicked, and the night-jars hooted at the windows, and the all-but-naked compositors wiped the sweat from their foreheads and called for water. The thing that was keeping us back, whatever it was, would not come off, though the loo dropped and the last type was set, and the whole round earth stood still in the choking heat with its finger on its lip to wait the event. I drowsed and wondered whether the telegraph was a blessing, and whether this dying man or struggling people might be aware of the inconvenience the delay was causing. There was no special reason beyond the heat and worry to make tension, but as the clock-hands crept up to three o'clock, and the machines spun their fly-wheels two and three times to see that all was in order before I said the word that would set them off, I could have shrieked aloud. Then the roar and rattle of the wheels shivered the quiet into little bits. I rose to go away, but two men in white clothes stood in front of me. The first one said, "'It's him!' The second said, "'So it is!' And they both laughed almost as loudly as the machinery roared and mopped their foreheads. "'We seed there was a light burning across the road, and we were sleeping in that ditch there for coolness, and I said to my friend here, "'The office is open. Let's come along and speak to him as turned us back from Decumber State,' said the smaller of the two. He was the man I had met in the mow train, and his fellow was the red-bearded man of Mawa Junction. There was no mistaking the eyebrows of the one, or the beard of the other. I was not pleased, because I wished to go to sleep, not to squabble with loafers. "'What do you want?' I asked. "'Half an hour's talk with you, cool and comfortable in the office,' said the red-bearded man. "'We'd like some drink. The contract doesn't begin yet, Peachy, so you needn't look. But what we really want is advice. We don't want money. We ask you as a favour because we found out you did us a bad turn about Degumba State. I led from the press room to the stifling office with the maps on the walls, and the red-haired man rubbed his hands. That's something like, said he. This was the proper shop to come to. Now, sir, let me introduce you to Brother Peachy Carnahan, that's him, and Brother Daniel Dravot, that is me, and the less said about our professions the better, for we have been most things in our time, soldier, sailor, compositor, photographer, proofreader, street preacher, and correspondence of the backwoodsman, when we thought the paper wanted one. Carnan is sober, so am I. Look at us first and see that's sure. It will save you cutting into my talk. We'll take one of your cigars apiece, and you shall see us light up. I watched the test. The men were absolutely sober, so I gave them each a tepid whisky and soda. 
"'Well and good,' said Carnahan of the eyebrows, wiping the froth from his moustache. "'Let me talk now, Dan. We have been all over India, mostly on foot. We have been boiler-fitters, engine-drivers, petty contractors, and all that, and we have decided that India isn't big enough for such as us.' They certainly were too big for the office. Dravert's beard seemed to fill half the room, and Carnahan's shoulders the other half, as they sat on the big table. Carnahan continued, "'The country isn't half worked out, because they that governs it won't let you touch it. They spend all their blessed time in governing it, and you can't lift a spade, nor chip a rock, nor look for oil, nor anything like that, without all the government saying, "'Leave it alone and let us govern.' Therefore, such as it is, we will let it alone, and go away to some other place where a man isn't crowded and can come to his own. We are not little men, and there is nothing that we are afraid of except drink, and we have signed a contract on that. Therefore, we are going away to be kings. Kings in our own right, muttered Dravot. Yes, of course, I said. You've been tramping in the sun, and it's a very warm night, and hadn't you better sleep over the notion? Come to-morrow. Neither drunk nor sunstruck, said Dravot. We have slept over the notion half a year, and require to see books and atlases, and we have decided that there is only one place now in the world that two strong men can sarah whack. They call it Kafiristan. By my reckoning, it's the top right-hand corner of Afghanistan, not more than three hundred miles from Peshawar. They have two and thirty heathen idols there, and we'll be the thirty-third and fourth. It's a mountainous country. The women of those parts are very beautiful. But that is provided against in the contract, said Carnahan. Neither women nor liquor, Daniel. And that's all we know, except that no one has gone there, and they fight, and in any place where they fight, a man who knows how to drill men can always be a king. We shall go to those parts and say to any king we find, Do you want to vanquish your foes? And we will show him how to drill men, for that we know better than anything else. Then we will subvert that king and seize his throne and establish a dynasty. You'll be cut to pieces before you're fifty miles across the border, I said. You have to travel through Afghanistan to get to that country. It's one mass of mountains and peaks and glaciers, and no Englishman has been through it. The people are utter brutes, and even if you reached them you couldn't do anything. That's more like, said Carnahan. If you could think us a little more mad, we would be more pleased. We have come to you to know about this country, to read a book about it and be shown maps. We want you to tell us that we're fools, and to show us your books. He turned to the bookcases. Are you at all in earnest? I said. A little, said Dravot sweetly. As big a map as you've got, even if it's all blank where Kefiristan is, and any books you've got. We can read, though we aren't very educated. I uncased the big thirty-two miles to the inch map of India, and two smaller frontier maps, hauled down volume Inf to Can of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, and the men consulted them. "'See here,' said Dravot, with his thumb on the map. "'Up to Jack Dalek, Peachy and me know the road. "'We was there with Robert's army. "'We'll have to turn off to the right at Jack Dalek through Lagman territory. "'Then we get among the hills. fourteen thousand feet, fifteen thousand. "'It'll be cold work there, but it don't look very far on the map.' I handed him wood on the sources of the Oxus. Carnahan was deep in the encyclopedia. "'They're a mixed lot,' said Dravot reflectively, "'and it won't help us to know the names of their tribes. "'The more tribes, the more they'll fight, and the better for us. "'From Jagdalek to Ashang. Hmm. "'But all the information about the country is as sketchy and inaccurate as can be,' I protested. No one knows anything about it, really. Here's the file of the United Services Institute. Read what Bellew says. Blow Bellew, said Carnahan. Dan, they're a stinking lot of heathens, but this book here says they think they're related to us English. 
I smoked while the men pored over Ravity, Wood, the maps, and the encyclopedia. "'There is no use your waiting,' said Dravot politely. "'It's about four o'clock now. We'll go before six o'clock if you want to sleep, and we won't steal any of the papers. Don't you sit up. We're two harmless lunatics, and if you come tomorrow evening down to the Serai, we'll say good-bye to you.' "'You are two fools.' I answered. You'll be turned back at the frontier, or cut up the minute you set foot in Afghanistan. Do you want any money or a recommendation down country? I can help you to the chance of work next week. Next week we shall be hard at work ourselves, thank you, said Dravot. It isn't so easy being a king as it looks. When we've got our kingdom in going order, we'll let you know you can come up and help us govern it. "'Would two lunatics make a contract like that?' said Carnahan, with subdued pride, showing me a greasy half-sheet of note-paper, on which was written the following. I copied it then and there as a curiosity. "'This contract's between me and you, pursuing, witnesseth in the name of God, Amen, and so forth. "'One, that me and you will settle this matter together,' i.e. to be kings of Kafiristan. 2. That you and me will not, while this matter is being settled, look at any liquor, nor any woman, black, white, or brown, so as to get mixed up with one or the other harmful. 3. That we conduct ourselves with dignity and discretion, and if one of us gets into trouble, the other will stay by him. Signed by you and me this day, Peachy Taliaferro Carnahan, Daniel Dravot, both gentlemen at large. "'There was no need for the last article,' said Carnahan, blushing modestly. "'But it looks regular. "'Now you know the sort of men that loafers are. "'We are loafers, Dan, until we get out of India. "'And do you think that we would sign a contract like that unless we was in earnest? "'We have kept away from the two things that make life worth having.' "'You won't enjoy your lives much longer if you're going to try this idiotic adventure. "'Don't set the office on fire,' I said, and go away before nine o'clock. "'I left them still poring over the maps and making notes on the back of the contract. "'Be sure to come down to the Serai tomorrow,' were their parting words. End of Part One Part two of The Man Who Would Be King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling. Part two. The Kumar Sen Sarai is the great four-square sink of humanity, where the strings of camels and horses from the north load and unload. All the nationalities of Central Asia may be found there, and most of the folk of India proper. Balk and Bokhara there meet Bengal and Bombay, and try to draw eye-teeth. You can buy ponies, turquoises, Persian pussycats, saddle-bags, fat-tailed sheep, and musk in the Kumharsen Serai, and get many strange things for nothing. In the afternoon I went down to see whether my friends intended to keep their word, or were lying there drunk. A priest attired in fragments of ribbons and rags stalked up to me, gravely twisting a child's paper whirligig. Behind him was his servant bending under the load of a crate of mud toys. The two were loading up two camels, and the inhabitants of the Serai watched them with shrieks of laughter. "'The priest is mud,' said a horse-dealer to me. "'He is going up to Kabul to sell toys to the Amir. He will either be raised to honour or have his head cut off.' He came in here this morning and has been behaving madly ever since. "'The witless are under the protection of God,' stammered a flat-cheeked Uzbek in broken Hindi. "'They foretell future events.' "'Would they could have foretold that my caravan would have been cut up by the Shinwaris almost within shadow of the pass,' grunted the Yusufzai agent of a Rajputana trading-house, whose goods had been diverted into the hands of other robbers just across the border, and whose misfortunes were the laughing-stock of the bazaar. "'Oe, priest! Whence come you, and whither do you go?' 
"'From Rum have I come,' shouted the priest, waving his whirligig. "'From Rum, blown by the breath of a hundred devils across the sea, "'all thieves, robbers, liars, the blessing of Pirkan on pigs, dogs, and perjurers. "'Who will take the protected of God to the north "'to sell charms that are never still to the Amir? "'The camels shall not gall, the sons shall not fall sick, "'and the wives shall remain faithful while they are away "'of the men who give me place in their caravan. "'Who will assist me to slipper the king of the Ruse "'with a golden slipper with a silver heel? "'The protection of Pir Khan be upon his labours.' He spread out the skirts of his gabardine and pirouetted between the lines of tethered horses. "'There starts a caravan from Peshawar to Kabul in twenty days, Husrut,' said the Yusufsa trader. "'My camels go therewith. Do thou also go and bring us good luck.' "'I will go even now,' shouted the priest. "'I will depart upon my winged camels and be at Peshawar in a day. Ho! Hazir Mir Khan!' he yelled to his servant. "'Drive out the camels, but let me first mount my own.' He leapt on the back of his beast as it knelt, and, turning round to me, cried, "'Come thou also, Sahib, a little along the road, and I will sell thee a charm, an amulet that shall make thee king of Kafiristan.' Then the light broke upon me, and I followed the two camels out of the sarai, till we reached open road, and the priest halted. "'What do you think of that?' said he in English. "'Carnahan can't talk there, Parra, so I've made him my servant. He makes a handsome servant. "'Tisn't for nothing that I've been knocking about the country for fourteen years. Didn't I do that talk neat? We'll hitch on to a caravan at Peshawar till we get to Jagdalak, and then we'll see if we can get donkeys for our camels and strike into Kafiristan.' Whirligigs for the Amir, oh lor. Put your hand under the camel-bags and tell me what you feel. I felt the butt of a martini, and another, and another. Twenty of em, said Dravot placidly. Twenty of em, and ammunition to correspond, under the whirligigs and the mud dolls. Heaven help you if you're caught with those things, I said. A martini is worth our weight in silver among the Pathans. Fifteen hundred rupees of capital, every rupee we could beg, borrow, or steal, are invested on those two camels, said Dravot. We won't get caught. We're going through the Khyber with a regular caravan. Who'd touch a poor mad priest? Have you got everything you want? I asked, overcome with astonishment. Not yet, but we shall soon. Give us a memento of your kindness, brother. You did me a service yesterday and that time in Marwell. Half my kingdom shall you have, as the saying is. I slipped a small charm compass from my watch-chain and handed it up to the priest. Good-bye, said Dravot, giving me hand cautiously. It's the last time we'll shake hands with an Englishman these many days. Shake hands with him, Carnahan, he cried as the second camel passed me. Carnahan leaned down and shook hands. Then the camels passed away along the dusty road, and I was left alone to wander. My eye could detect no failure in the disguises. The scene in the Sarai proved that they were complete to the native mind. There was just the chance, therefore, that Carnahan and Dravot would be able to wander through Afghanistan without detection. But beyond, they would find death, certain and awful death. Ten days later, a native correspondent, giving me the news of the day from Peshawar, wound up his letter with, There has been much laughter here, on the account of a certain mad priest, who is going, in his estimation, to sell pretty gourds and insignificant trinkets, which he ascribes as great charms, to H. H. the Amir of Bokhara. He passed through Peshawar, and associated himself to the second summer caravan that goes to Kabul. The merchants are pleased, because through superstition they imagine that such mad fellows bring good fortune. The two, then, were beyond the border. I would have prayed for them, but that night a real king died in Europe, and demanded an obituary notice.
the wheel of the world swings through the same phases again and again. Summer passed and winter thereafter, and came and passed again. The daily paper continued, and I with it, and upon the third summer there fell a hot night, a night issue, and a strained waiting for something to be telegraphed from the other side of the world, exactly as had happened before. A few great men had died in the past two years, the machines worked with more clatter, and some of the trees in the office garden were a few feet taller, but that was all the difference. I passed over to the press-room, and went through just such a scene as I have already described. The nervous tension was stronger than it had been two years before, and I felt the heat more acutely. At three o'clock I cried, "'Print off!' and turned to go. When there crept to my chair what was left of a man. He was bent into a circle, his head was sunk between his shoulders, and he moved his feet one over the other like a bear. I could hardly see whether he walked or crawled, this rag-wrapped, whining cripple, who addressed me by name, crying that he was come back. "'Can you give me a drink?' he whimpered. "'For the Lord's sake, give me a drink!' I went back to the office, the man following with groans of pain, and I turned up the lamp. "'Don't you know me?' he gasped, dropping into a chair, and he turned his drawn face, surmounted by a shock of grey hair, to the light. I looked at him intently. Once before had I seen eyebrows that met over the nose in an inch-broad black band, but for the life of me I could not tell where. "'I don't know you,' I said, handing him the whisky. "'What can I do for you?' He took a gulp of the spirit raw, and shivered in spite of the suffocating heat. "'I've come back,' he repeated. "'And I was the king of Kifiristan. "'Me and Dravot, crowned kings we was. "'In this office we settled it. "'You sitting there and giving us the books. "'I'm Peachy, Peachy Taliaferro Carnahan, "'and you've been sitting here ever since, oh, Lord!' I was more than a little astonished, and expressed my feelings accordingly. "'It's true,' said Carnahan, with a dry cackle, nursing his feet which were wrapped in rags. "'True as gospel kings we were, with crowns upon our heads, me and Dravot. Poor Dan, oh, poor, poor Dan, that would never take advice, not though I begged of him. "'Take the whisky," I said, "'and take your own time.' "'Tell me all you can recollect of everything from beginning to end. "'You got across the border on your camels, "'Dravot dressed as a mad priest and you his servant. "'Do you remember that?' "'I ain't mad. Yet. "'But I shall be that way soon. "'Of course I remember. "'Keep looking at me, or maybe my words will go all to pieces. "'Keep looking at me in my eyes, and don't say anything.' I leaned forward and looked into his face as steadily as I could. He dropped one hand upon the table, and I grasped it by the wrist. It was twisted like a bird's claw, and upon the back was a ragged, red, diamond-shaped scar. "'No, don't look there. Look at me,' said Carnahan. "'That comes afterward. But for the Lord's sake, don't distract me. We left with that caravan.' me and Dravot playing all sorts of antics to amuse the people we were with. Dravot used to make us laugh in the evenings, when all the people was cooking their dinners. Cooking their dinners, and what did they do then? They lit little fires with sparks that went into Dravot's beard, and we all laughed, fit to die. Little red fires they was going into Dravot's big red beard. So funny. His eyes left mine, and he smiled foolishly. "'You went as far as Jagdalak with that caravan,' I said at a venture, "'after you had lit those fires. "'To Jagdalak, where you turned off to try to get into Kafiristan?' "'No, we didn't, neither. "'What are you talking about? "'We turned off before Jagdalak, because we heard the roads was good. "'But they wasn't good enough for our two camels, mine and Dravot's. When we left the caravan, 
Dravot took off all his clothes, and mine too, and said we would be heathen, because the Kaffirs didn't allow Mohammedans to talk to them. So we dressed betwixt and between, and such a sight as Daniel Dravot I never saw yet, nor it's better to see again. He burned half his beard, and slung a sheepskin over his shoulder, and shaved his head into patterns. He shaved mine too, and made me wear outrageous things to look like a heathen. That was in a most mountainous country, and our camels couldn't go along any more because of the mountains. They were tall and black. Coming home I saw them fight like wild goats. There are lots of goats in Kafiristan. And these mountains, they never keep still, no more than the goats. Always fighting they are, and don't let you sleep at night. Take some more whisky, I said very slowly. What did you and Daniel Dravot do when the camels could go no farther because of the rough roads that led into Kafiristan? What did which do? There was a party called Peachy Talia Ferro Carnan that was with Dravot. Shall I tell you about him? He died out there in the cold. Slap from the bridge fell old Peachy, turning and twisting in the air like a penny whirly gig that you can sell to the Amir. Now they was two for three eightpence those whirly gigs, or I'm much mistaken and woeful sore. And then these camels were no use, and Peachy said to Dravot, "For the Lord's sake, let's get out of this before our heads are chopped off." And with that, they killed the camels all along the mountains not having anything in particular to eat, but first they took off the boxes with the guns and the ammunition, till two men came along driving four mules. Dravot up and dances in front of them, singing, "'Sell me four mules,' says the first man. "'If you're rich enough to buy, you're rich enough to rob.' But before ever he could put his hand to his knife, Dravot breaks his neck over his knee, and the other party runs away. So Carnan loaded the mules with rifles that was taken off the camels, and together we starts forward into those bitter cold mountainous parts, and never a road broader than the back of your hand. He paused for a moment while I asked him if he could remember the nature of the country through which they had journeyed. I'm telling you as straight as I can, but my head isn't as good as it might be. They drove nails through it to make me hear better how Drevert died. The country was mountainous, and the mules were most contrary, and the inhabitants was dispersed and solitary. They went up and up, and down and down, and that other party, Carnahan, was imploring of Dravot not to sing and whistle so loud for fear of bringing down the tremendous avalanches. But Dravot says, that if a king couldn't sing it wasn't worth being a king, and whacked the mules over the rump and never took no heed for ten cold days. We came to a big level valley all among the mountains, and the mules was near dead, so we killed them, not having anything in special for them or us to eat. We sat upon the boxes and played odd and even with the cartridges that was jolted out. Then ten men with bows and arrows ran down that valley, chasing twenty men with bows and arrows, and the row was tremendous. They was fair men, fairer than you or me, with yellow hair and remarkable well-built. Says Draver, unpacking the guns, This is the beginning of the business. We'll fight for the ten men. And with that he fires two rifles at the twenty men, and drops one of them at two hundred yards from the rock where he was sitting. The other men began to run, but Carnian and Dravot sits on the boxes, picking them off at all ranges up and down the valley. Then we goes up to the ten men that had run across the snow too, and they fires a footy little arrow at us. Dravot, he shoots above their heads, and they all falls down flat. Then he walks over them and kicks them, and then he lifts them up and shakes hands all round to make them friendly-like. He calls them and gives them the boxes to carry, and waves his hand for all the world as though he was king already. They takes the boxes and him across the valley, and up the hill into a pine wood on the top, 
where there was half a dozen big stone idols. Draver, he goes to the biggest, a fellow they call Imbra, and lays a rifle and a cartridge at his feet, rubbing his nose respectfully with his own nose, patting him on the head, and nods his head and says, "'That's all right. I'm in the know, too, and these old jim-jams are my friends.' Then he opens his mouth and points down it, and when the first man brings him food he says no, and when the second man brings him food he says no, but when one of the old priests and the boss of the village brings him food he says yes, very haughty, and eats it slow. That was how we came to our first village without any trouble, just as though we had tumbled from the skies. We tumbled from one of those damned rope bridges, you see, and you couldn't expect a man to laugh much after that. Take some more whisky and go on, I said. That was the first village you came into. How did you get to be king? I wasn't king, said Carnahan. Draver, he was the king, and a handsome man he looked with a gold crown on his head and all. Him and the other party stayed in that village, and every morning Dravot sat by the side of old Imbra, and the people came and worshipped. That was Dravot's order. Then a lot of men came into the valley, and Carnin and Dravot picks them off with their rifles before they knew where they was, and runs down into the valley and up again the other side, and finds another village, same as the first one, and the people all falls down flat on their faces, and Dravot says, now, what is the trouble between you two villages? And the people points to a woman, as fair as you or me, that was carried off. And Dravot takes her back to the first village and counts up the dead. Eight there was. For each dead man, Dravot pours a little milk on the ground and waves his arms like a whirligig, and that's all right, says he. Then he and Carnahan takes the big boss of each village by the arm and walks them down the valley and shows them how to scratch a line with a spear right down the valley and gives each a sod of turf from both sides of the line. Then all the people comes down and shouts like the devil and all and Dravot says, Go and dig the land and be fruitful and multiply. Which they did, though they didn't understand. Then we asks the names of things in their lingo, bread and water and fire and idols and such, and Dravot leads the priest of each village up to the idol and says he must sit there and judge the people, and if anything goes wrong, he is to be shot. Next week they was all turning up the land in the valley as quiet as bees and much prettier, and the priest heard all the complaints and told Dravot in dumb show what it was about. That's just the beginning, says Dravot. They think we're gods. He and Carnin picks out twenty good men and shows them how to click off a rifle and form fours and advance in line, and they was very pleased to do so, and clever to see the hang of it. Then he takes out his pipe and his backy pouch and leaves one at one village and one at the other, and off we two goes to see what was to be done in the next valley. That was all rock, and there was a little village there, and Carnian says, send them to the old valley to plant, and takes them there, and gives them some land that wasn't took before. They were a poor lot, and we blooded him with a kid before letting them into the new kingdom. That was to impress the people. And they settled down quiet, and Carnahan went back to Dravot, who had got into another valley, all snow and ice and most mountainous. There was no people there, and the army got afraid. So Dravot shoots one of them, and goes on till he finds some people in a village, and the army explains that unless the people wants to be killed, they had better not shoot their little matchlocks, for they had matchlocks. We makes friends with the priest, and I stays there alone with two of the army, teaching the men how to drill. And a thundering big chief comes across the snow with kettle drums and horns twanging, because he heard there was a new god kicking about. Carnahan sights for the brown and the men half a mile across the snow, and wings one of them. 
Then he sends a message to the chief that unless he wished to be killed, he must come and shake hands with me and leave his arms behind. The chief comes alone first, and Carnahan shakes hands with him and whirls his arms about, same as Dravot used, and very much surprised that chief was, and strokes my eyebrows. Then Carnahan goes alone to the chief and asks him in dumb show if he had an enemy he hated. I have, says the chief. So Carnahan weeds out the pick of his men and sets the two of the army to show them drill, and at the end of two weeks the men can manoeuvre about as well as volunteers. So he marches with the chief to a great big plain on the top of a mountain, and the chief's men rushes into a village and takes it, we three martinis firing into the brown of the enemy. So we took that village too, and I gives the chief a rag from my coat and says, Occupy till I come, which was scriptural. By way of a reminder, when me and the army was eighteen hundred yards away, I drops a bullet near him standing on the snow, and all the people falls flat on their faces. Then I sends a letter to Dravot, wherever he be, by land or by sea. At the risk of throwing the creature out of his train, I interrupted. How could you write a letter up yonder? The letter. Oh, the letter. Keep looking at me between the eyes, please. It was a string-talk letter, that we'd learned the way of it from a blind beggar in the Punjab. I remember that there once had come to the office a blind man with a knotted twig and a piece of string which he wound round the twig according to some cipher of his own. He could, after the lapse of days or hours, repeat the sentence which he had reeled up. He had reduced the alphabet to eleven primitive sounds, and tried to teach me his method, but I could not understand. "'I sent that letter to Dravot,' said Carnahan, "'and told him to come back, because this kingdom was growing too big for me to handle, "'and then I struck for the first valley to see how the priests were working.' They called the village we took along with the chief Bashkai, and the first village we took Urheb. The priests at Urheb was doing all right, but they had a lot of pending cases about land to show me, and some men from another village had been firing arrows at night. I went out and looked for that village, and fired four rounds at it from a thousand yards. That used all the cartridges I cared to spend, and I waited for Dravot, who had been away two or three months and I kept my people quiet. One morning I heard the devil's own noise of drums and horns, and Dan Dravot marches down the hill with his army and a tail of hundreds of men, and, which was the most amazing, a great gold crown on his head. "'My God, Carnan,' says Daniel, "'this is a tremendous business, and we've got the old country as far as it's worth having.' I am the son of Alexander by Queen Semiramis, and you're my younger brother and a god too. It's the biggest thing we've ever seen. I've been marching and fighting for six weeks with the army, and every footy little village for fifty miles has come in rejoiceful. And more than that, I've got the key of the old show, as you'll see, and I've got a crown for you. I told them to make two of them at a place called Shoe, where the gold lies in the rock like suet in mutton. Gold I've seen, and turquoise I've kicked out of the cliffs, and there's garnets in the sands of the river, and here's a chunk of amber that a man brought me. Call up all the priests in here, take your crown. One of the men opens a black hair bag, and I slips the crown on. It was too small and too heavy, but I wore it for the glory. Hammered gold, it was five pounds weight, like a hoop of a barrel. Peachy, says Dravot, we don't want to fight no more. The craft's the trick, so help me. And he brings forward that same chief that I left at Bashkai. Billy Fish, we called him afterward, because he was so like Billy Fish that drove the big tank engine at Match on the Bolan in the old days. Shake hands with him, says Dravot and I shook hands and nearly dropped, for Billy Fish gave me the grip. I said nothing, but tried him with the fellow-craft grip. He answers all right, and I tried the master's grip, but that was a slip. 
fellow craft he is, I said to Dan. Does he know the word? He does, says Dan, and all the priests know. It's a miracle. The chiefs and the priests can work a fellow craft lodge in a way that's very like ours, and they've cut the marks on the rock, but they don't know the third degree, and they've come to find out. It's God's truth. I've known these long years that the Afghans knew up to the fellow craft degree, but this is a miracle. A god and a grand master of the craft am I, and a lodge in the third degree I will open, and will raise the head priests and the chiefs of the villages. It's against all the law, I says, holding a lodge without warrant from anyone, and you know we never held office in any lodge. It's a master stroke of policy, says Dravot. It means running the country as easy as a four-wheeled bogey on a downgrade. We can't stop to inquire now, or they'll turn against us. I've forty chiefs at my heel, and passed and raised according to their merit they shall be. Billet these men on the villages, and see that we run up a lodge of some kind. The Temple of Imbra will do for a lodge-room. The women must make aprons as you show them. I'll hold a levy of chiefs tonight and lodge tomorrow. I was fair run off my legs. But I wasn't such a fool as not to see what a pull this craft business gave us. I showed the priests' families how to make aprons of the degrees, but for Dravot's apron, the blue border and marks was made out of turquoise lumps on white hide, not cloth. We took a great square stone in the temple for the master's chair, and little stones for the officers' chairs, and painted the black pavement with white squares, and did what we could to make things regular. At the levee, which was held that night on the hillside with big bonfires, Dravot gives out that him and me were gods and sons of Alexander, and past grand masters in the craft, and was come to make Kafiristan a country where every man should eat in peace and drink in quiet, and specially obey us. Then the chiefs come round to shake hands, and they were so hairy and white and fair it was just shaking hands with old friends. We gave them names according as they was like men we had known in India. Billy Fish, Ollie Dilworth, Picky Kurgan that was Bazaar Master when I was at Mo, and so on and so on. The most amazing miracles was at Lodge next night. One of the old priests was watching us continuous, and I felt uneasy for I knew we'd have to fudge the ritual and I didn't know what the men knew. The old priest was a stranger coming from beyond the village of Bashkai. The minute Dravot puts on the master's apron that the girls had made for him, the priest fetches a whoop and a howl and tries to overturn the stone that Dravot was sitting on. It's all up now, I said. That comes a meddling with the craft without warrant. Dravot never winked an eye, not when ten priests took and tilted over the grand master's chair which was to say the stone of Imbra. The priest begins rubbing the bottom end of it to clear away the black dirt, and presently he shows all the other priests the master's mark, same as was on Dravot's apron, cut into the stone. Not even the priests of the temple of Imbra knew it was there. The old chap falls flat on his face at Dravot's feet and kisses him. Luck again, says Dravot across the lodge to me. They say it's the missing mark that no one could understand the why of. We're more than safe now. Then he bangs the butt of his gun for a gavel and says, By the virtue of the authority vested in me by my own right hand and the help of Peachy, I declare myself Grand Master of all Freemasonry and Kafiristan in this the mother lodge of the country and king of Kafiristan equally with Peachy. At that he puts on his crown, and I puts on mine. I was doing senior warden, and we opened the lodge in most ample form. It was an amazing miracle. The priests moved in lodge through the first two degrees, almost without telling, as if the memory was coming back to them. After that, Peachy and Dravot raised such as was worthy, high priests and chiefs of far-off villages. Billy Fish was the first, and I can tell you we scared the soul out of him. 
it was not in any way according to ritual, but it served our turn. We didn't raise more than ten of the biggest men, because we didn't want to make the degree common, and they was clamouring to be raised. "'In another six months,' says Dravot, "'we'll hold another communication and see how you're working.' Then he asks them about their villages, and learns that they was fighting one against the other and were sick and tired of it. And when they wasn't doing that, they was fighting with the Mohammedans. "'You can fight those when they come into our country,' says Dravot. "'Tell off every tenth man of your tribes for a frontier guard, and send two hundred at a time to this valley to be drilled. Nobody is going to be shot or speared any more so long as he does well, and I know that you won't cheat me.' because you're white people, sons of Alexander, and not like common black Mohammedans. You are my people, and by God, says he, running off into English at the end, I'll make a damned fine nation of you, or I'll die in the making. End of part two. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.